Hi, this is Kenny Duff, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is our Sunday sermon. Thank you so much for taking time to join. It is Sunday, August 28th. Today is part two of the new sermon series called God Goes to War. Now, we're going through the entire book of Revelation in just nine weeks. It is an epic journey, to be sure. Last week, we began by looking at the first three chapters of the book, Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, And we talked about standing against evil and how important the local churches are in that effort. Today's sermon is titled, The Power of Worship, and we'll be studying Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Got a lot to tell you, and we'll do that shortly. But right now, join me in an opening word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to continue to study this powerful book. Lord, all your books are powerful. The entire Bible is powerful. But we're excited about this one. So open our hearts to understand the power of worship today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. It was a Tuesday morning. People awoke that day and began their morning routines just like any other day. Getting ready for work or school. Coffee pots brewing. Breakfasts being prepared. School buses rolling. People driving. Planes and trains carrying people to appointed destinations. All oblivious of what was about to come. That day... Nineteen evil men whose hearts were filled with darkness and hate, whose minds were dominated by a sense of self-righteousness and vengeance, hijacked four airliners and carried out suicide attacks against specially selected targets. At 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, American Airlines Flight 11, traveling from Boston to Los Angeles, struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Minutes later, at 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175, traveling from Boston to Los Angeles, struck the South Tower of the World Trade Center. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77, traveling from Virginia to Los Angeles, struck the Pentagon. And at 10.30 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93, traveling from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, crashed in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, never reaching its destination because of the courage and sacrifice of those on board. Those 19 men murdered over 3,000 people during those attacks, which included more than 400 police officers and firefighters. Osama bin Laden took immediate credit for the attack, and Muslims across the Middle East rejoiced at the crippling of the great Satan, us. Expecting further potential attacks, all commercial airline flights were immediately grounded. The nation was paralyzed and businesses ground to a halt. America was shocked and devastated and on the verge of financial collapse. What our nation needed and what we received from President Bush was someone who could say, I understand your fear. I know the enemy and I have a plan to deal with them. I know what we're going to do to face the coming days and we will overcome this hardship and tragedy together. Folks, that's essentially the message of Revelation 4. God is saying, I understand your fear. I know the enemy. I have a plan to deal with them. And I know what we're going to do to face the coming days, and we will overcome this hardship and tragedy together. Open up your Bible or Bible apps to Revelation 4 
and take a look with me at the opening four verses. Notice these words. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had crowns on their heads. Now notice what's happening here. Jesus tells John in verse 1, he's about to see what must happen after this. Most are familiar with what's coming in the following chapters of Revelation. There's going to be some horrendous pictures of war, famine, plague, and death. And you know, folks, preachers and teachers who make a living telling people about the horrors of Revelation jump right into describing all those dangers and challenges that the future holds, but not Jesus. Have you noticed that? Jesus doesn't jump into the pictures of the future. Instead, we find ourselves in God's throne room witnessing an awesome worship service filled with strange sights and sounds, lightning and thunder and rumblings in the distance, beautiful colors, unusual creatures, and an inspiring example of how to praise God. You know, when I first began to look at these verses to study them, I thought, what is going on here? Jesus just told John that he's about to see what must happen after this. So why does Jesus take John to a church service right off the bat? I'm sure it was a beautiful ceremony, but it seems irrelevant. Why not just get right down to the nitty gritty and tell us what we really want to know? Tell us about the conflict between the forces of good and evil. Tell us about the conflict between Satan's army and the angels of God. Why start at a worship service? Why? Because that's where God knew we needed to begin. We need to realize that when we read the book of Revelation, it's possible for us to focus on the wrong things. TV evangelists and radio preachers get caught up looking at all the wrong things. They do it all the time. Many of these folks focus on the powers of darkness, the mark of the beast, the battle of Armageddon, and so on. Most of the teachers who teach those topics seem to dwell on the darker, scarier aspects of this vision. And by doing so, they end up focusing on the wrong things. For example, how many of you have heard about the mark of the beast? You know, 666 as described in Revelation 13. Do you know that for the past 50 years or so, these prophetic teachers have gotten people so scared of this prophecy of the mark of the beast that there's a lot of faithful churchgoers that are fighting any attempt by our government to use social security numbers, identification cards, or anything like that. In fact, if 666 ends up being a part of their phone number or social security number or any other number that's part of their lives, they just go spastic. I mean, they're afraid to go to sleep for fear of waking up and finding out somehow they've got the mark of the beast. And why are they afraid? Because these prophetic teachers make them afraid. They know fear sells. I've got a couple of questions for you. First, in what book of the Bible do we read about the mark of the beast? That's right, right here in Revelation. Second, who tells us about the mark of the beast? Now, if you said John, that's not entirely wrong, but it's really God. John's just writing on God's behalf. So it is God who tells us about the mark of the beast. So do you suppose 
that God knew this was going to happen? Of course he did. Do you think maybe God had planned on this happening? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. So if God knew it was supposed to happen and he made plans to deal with it, do you think we could ever do anything to stop it from happening? Well, of course not. On top of that, by the way God describes the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, it's obvious that Christians are not going to suddenly wake up one day and find out that they have the mark on them. That's just bogus. And regardless of whether the mark came or when it will come, Christians will be forced to make a decision. They'll either have to take the mark, worship the beast, and survive, or follow Jesus and starve. Revelation 13, verses 11 to 18. Now, as I researched the internet for comments on Mark of the Beast, I ran across some really interesting comments. Here's a couple of them I want to share with you. The first was, one of the prominent speculations was that the mark was to be an implantable microchip, and that this chip would identify who you are. It would be similar to the photograph in your driver's license. Another speculation was that it would be a number like your social security number or credit card number, and that only you would have it. Some speculated it would be like a password or a PIN number. One site showed a picture of a barcode and stated that each barcode in existence had 666 embedded in it. Now, as I read through these internet pages, I found their authors stressing a fear of an approaching cashless society. And there was a really heavy emphasis on that Big Brother theory that Big Brother's watching. And one of the authors even wrote, and I quote, the real truth is this, the astounding prophecies of doom and a great antichrist are just a smokescreen used by the dark brotherhood to cast an illusion over the real beast, antichrist, and meaning of 666, so the masses will continue to bear the mark, end quote. As I read through these items, I recalled a joke about a man who was talking to his friend saying, hey, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. These guys are paranoid, and it's easy to understand why. Revelation can be a scary book. Look, it's not my choice to read to my grandkids at bedtime, okay? I mean, there are some frightening images in there, and God knows that. And that's why the vision starts in the throne room. Back to the opening four verses we read a few minutes ago. Consider the images they place in your minds. The first image is, it's just awesome. And then it's unearthly. I mean, there's odd looking creatures in the room. But there's this image of somehow it's comforting. 24 elders in white garments and gold crowns. These elders at least look something like us. And God is worshiped by everything in heaven and on earth. Everything and everyone subjects itself to God, not because they have to, but because he's worthy. Everything is voluntary, spontaneous, filled with excitement and joy. There's a sense of wonder, a sense of power there. And then there's this image that's an assurance that if this is my God, then my enemies better watch out. The images that follow this in chapters 5 through 18 can be frightening and candidly a bit overwhelming. But our God is bigger than anything the world can throw at us. He occupies the higher ground and nothing can stand against his power. As John wrote in 1 John 4, 4, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. In John 16, 33, Jesus taught us, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. 
Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. That's what Revelation is trying to drive home to us. It says we're going to struggle in this world. We're going to have trials and sorrows. And frankly, folks, it doesn't matter how you read the rest of Revelation. The truth is inescapable. You will have troubles in this world. But the scripture says, take heart. Jesus' own words, take heart. Take heart, why? Because of God. Take heart because you belong to Jesus and you will overcome. So Revelation 4 is not only telling us we'll overcome, but I believe it's telling us how we can overcome. I believe we will overcome by following the example of those in that throne room. Look at Revelation 4 verses 10 and 11, and let's see what they're doing there. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Look more closely at what they're doing. They're singing praises to God. They're worshiping the Father. They're focusing all of their attention on him. And everything is centered on the throne in the midst of that room. Why? Because when we do things like that on a regular basis, when we praise and worship God, we focus our attention solely on him. And when we focus our attention solely on God, we're not focusing on our circumstances and difficulties. We're not focusing on our failures and tragedies. When we learn to worship and praise God like these in the throne room do, we are focusing upon the God who has the power and majesty and the desire to lift us up out of our despair and hopelessness. That's why in verse 8, the four living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. God has always been there in the past. He's always with us in the present and he'll always be there in the future when we need him. He'll never leave us or forsake us, even in our darkest moments. And that's why in verse 11, the 24 elders cast down their crowns before his throne and sang this praise, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. This is the God who created everything that has ever existed simply by the words from his lips. He is a God of awesome power and might, and those who stand against him don't have a chance. We shall overcome, because we have the power of God on our side. You know, in 1607, a German named Martin Reinhardt wrote a beautiful hymn that's been sung in churches for over 400 years. Let me sing a couple of verses for you. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom his world rejoices who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still as ours today. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and Him who reigns 
with them in highest heaven. The one eternal God, whom earth and heaven adore, for this it was, is now, and shall be evermore. How many of you recognize that song? It's called, Now Thank We All Our God. For centuries, this has been a well-known and often sung song of praise. But in the year that Reinhardt wrote that hymn, over 6,000 people in his German village, including his wife and children, died of pestilence. In the midst of that great catastrophic social and personal loss, Reinhardt wrote one of the most lasting hymns of praise. Note the words of that last verse again. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God, whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. In the midst of his tragic loss, I really believe Reinhardt must have been reading from Revelation 4, because he literally quotes its words. But why? Why did he write that hymn? I believe he wrote it because he understood what Revelation is trying to tell us. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, Jesus said, because I have overcome the world. Again, John 16, 33. Focus on God's throne. Set your eyes and your heart and your soul on him who has the power to help you face and overcome your tragedies and heartaches. Folks, that's what worship is all about. That's the reason for our gathering to sing songs of praise and glory to God. It's to train us, to prepare us, to drive home into our hearts that the only sure power we have to face the fears and anxieties of this world is to focus on the Father and upon his throne. You know, if you're not singing on Sunday mornings during the worship service, you are robbing yourself. Whether it's a classic hymn or a new praise song, whether it's familiar or not, whether you like the song or not, if you're not singing, then you're robbing yourself, especially in times of struggle. I want to close this with a true story from a few years back. An elementary school teacher by the name of Phyllis Martin told this story. She said, Storm clouds and strong gusts of wind had come up suddenly over Columbus, Ohio. The Alpine Elementary School radio blared tornado warnings. It was too dangerous to send the children home. Instead, they were taken to the basement where the children huddled together in fear. We teachers were worried too. To help ease the tension, the principal suggested a sing-along, but the voices were weak and unenthusiastic. Child after child began to cry. We could not calm them. Then a teacher, whose faith seemed equal to any emergency, whispered to the child closest to her, Aren't you forgetting something, Kathy? There is a power greater than the storm that will protect us. Just say to yourself, God is with us. Then pass the words on to the child next to you. As the words were whispered from child to child, a sense of peace settled over the group. I could hear the wind outside still blowing with the same ferocity of the moment before, but it didn't seem to matter now. Inside, Fear subsided and tears faded away. The all-clear signal came over the radio sometime later and the students and staff returned to the classrooms without the usual jostling and talking. Through the years, I've remembered those calming words. In times of stress and trouble, I have again been able to find release from the tension by repeating, God is with us. Beloved, I want to ask you something today. 
Is God with you? Have you learned to look to him in times of deepest trouble? In those times, you need to remember, say this with me, God is with you. Say it again. God is with you. But if you don't belong to God, you don't have that promise. That's why we offer this time at the end of every sermon, giving you an opportunity to decide for yourself, to say, God, I surrender my life to you. I confess my sins before you. I believe, God, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I can say with full assurance, you are with me. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.